the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour, High Candidate. Sue Hewitt. I've got about 50% of my voice back, which is enough to ask questions and play tape. I'm so glad to be here. It should be 100% by tomorrow. Laryngitis, you feel great. You just sound awful. Uh, I want to begin with, yesterday we had a debate on CNN between Governor DeSantis and Ambassador Haley, and we had former President Trump on with Brett Baer. Martha McCollum for a town hall. They were competing events. Maybe you saw one, both, or neither. I'm going to play clips from all of them. The headlines are split. Everyone agrees the big headline is that Chris Christie ended his campaign. And that makes New Hampshire more interesting. Governor ran a good campaign. He did his best for a time. I thought he was going to win in New Hampshire. And then Nikki Haley surged past him and not looking back. And he is, does, does not want to get in the way of a clear choice. And I salute the governor for that. A lot of service ad for Chris Christie. He's a very, very smart guy. Uh, various headlines tell you various reporters point of view. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis clash in bitter debate, says the Financial Times. Iowa debate takeaways. Haley DeSantis pummel each other. That's the Wall Street Journal and the Telegraph. Uh, Trump won't get through his criminal trial, DeSantis says in Iowa de- debate. Then the Washington Post has key takeaways from the debate. Then we've got Vivek Ramaswamy whining that he wasn't on the stage, though the rules were pretty clear. And uh, lots and lots. Let's just get to it. Let's start with the, I'm going to go alternate. Trump, DeSantis, Haley. Trump, DeSantis, Haley. Here's former President Trump last night talking on uh, the issue of whether or not he made money as president. Cut number one. I own hotels all over the, I don't get free money. Somebody rents a hotel room, et cetera, et cetera. Much money I gave back. In fact, I didn't have to do it. You know, George Washington was a very rich man. People don't know that. In his essentially White House, which wasn't built, but they had an office, he had a business desk and he had a country desk right next to each other. You're allowed to do that. I didn't do it. I put everything in trust. And if I have a hotel and somebody comes in from China, that's a small amount of money. And it sounds like a lot of money. That's a small. But I was doing services for that. People were staying in these massive hotels, these beautiful hotels, because I have the best hotels. I have the best clubs. I have the best clubs. I have, the, I have great stuff. And they stay there and they pay. I don't get $8 million for doing nothing like Hunter. I don't get, I don't get $500,000. I don't get $500,000 for doing a painting. It's not a bad idea, I guess, if you can get away with it. When I heard that one, I said, there's no way they get away with that. But they got away with that, I guess. They got away with it. Now, uh, we have, you know, there was an emoluments lawsuit against me where the radical left sued me for that. And I won the suit. And the judge said, they go to his hotels. What's he going to do? Yeah, okay. Then let's go to Nikki Haley at the CNN debate, talking directly at Ron DeSantis about how he's been managing his campaign. Cut number 13. So you go, I did not support the aid package. I support equipment and ammunition going to Ukraine. I think it is incredibly important that we're honest and say we have to focus on national security. Don't go and lie to the American people to make them think we can't do this. You turn around and raise the debt limit. You're the one that's talked about, look at what you did to Florida. But think about the fact that he's talking about where's this money going to come from. The best way to tell about a candidate is to see how they've run their campaign. He has blown 
loaned through $150 million. I don't even know how you do that. Through his campaign, he has nothing to show for it. He spent more money on private planes than he has on commercials trying to get Iowans to vote for him. If you can't manage a campaign, how are you going to manage a country? Let's go on then to Ron DeSantis, cut number 17, talking about Nikki Haley and whether or not she would be President Trump's vice president. Nikki is becoming a darling of the people who are more than ever Trump. Uh, And yet she won't answer the question about whether she would accept the VP nod. Uh, And she gives all these the mealy mouth response. What's wrong with just saying, no, I would not under any circumstances say that. And I think the fact that she has not done that is part of the reason Chris had been staying in. And I think that's part of the reason I think he's had those choice words. Do you think she would agree to be vice president? I do. I mean, I do. Because I think why would you not just say I would not? I've said I would not. Why not just say that she that was not from the debate, by the way, that was from a CNN post debate. Uh, get, let's go back to Donald Trump. Cut number two. I don't want to be you're not, you're not saying you're hoping for a crash just to be clear. No, I think this. I think the economy is horrible, except the stock market's going up. And I think the stock market's, go, market's going up because I'm leading Biden in all of the polls, every poll, every single poll for the last with states that normally are not easy to lead. You know, when you're leading in Pennsylvania, you're leading in Michigan, you're leading in uh, Wisconsin. We're leading in virtually every state and of the swing states. And overall, we're leading by a lot nationwide. Let's go to cut number 18. I uh, know. Cut number 14, Nikki Haley. Well, I think this is a time that we know that we need a new generational leader. We have watched our country be in disarray. We see the world on fire and we need someone who's had executive experience. I've been a two term governor that took a double digit unemployment state and turned it into an economic powerhouse. I was at the U.N. I dealt with Russia, China, Iran every day. Um, but you're going to find out tonight that there's going to be a lot of Ron's lies that have happened. There are at least a couple of dozen so far that he's done. So what we're going to do is rather Rather than have him go and tell you all these lies, you can go to DeSantisLies.com and look at all of those. There's at least two dozen lies that he's told about me, and you can see where fact checkers say exactly what's going to happen and exactly why it's wrong. So it will cover the fact that he's only mad about the donors because the donors used to be with him, but they're no longer with him now. And that's because he's upset about the fact that his... His campaign is exploding. You're going to see the fact that he has switched his um, policies multiple times, and we'll call that out tonight. But every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night. By the way, uh, DeSantisLies.com, very heavily trafficked last night. Some some of our political um, experts on Twitter thought it would be good to make fun of that. As you know, the lunch rule, if you don't say things seven times in the course of an appearance, people don't remember it. People remembered DeSantisLies.com and they went there. But Ron DeSantis um, came back and hit her, cut number 18. Yes, we need more people in institutionalized settings, unfortunately. Uh, But, you know, uh, Governor Haley mentioned, I think correctly, the devastating mental health consequences for these school closures, a lot of things that happened during COVID. I never recalled seeing her out there fighting the fight. I was on the front lines on that. Governor Kim Reynolds was on the front lines on that. We fought back against the biomedical state. We were attacked by the media. We were attacked by the pharmaceutical companies. We were attacked by the left, attacked by Fauci. We stood and we helped people. And Iowa and Florida had the best schools opening in the entire pandemic because we led. That's what you want to do. Now, in terms of mental health, I've run into veterans here uh, in Iowa, and I think we have a significant problem with veterans 
uh, particularly the post-9-11 veterans. And we know the stats on suicide. Um, it's really, really sad. And as a fellow veteran, on, as president, I have to put that issue on the front burner. We can't keep turning a blind eye to what's happening to our vets. It's not going to be done just through the VA. And it can't be done just by pumping people with pharmaceuticals. If a veteran has post-traumatic stress, you need more than just that. So we're going to use the VA to link veterans with resources that are throughout our country. For example, in Florida, uh, we have a, a, an organization that trains service dogs to be able to be paired with veterans with post-traumatic stress. They understand the symptoms. They mitigate it. And you know what? The suicide rate is close to zero as a result of that. We've got to think bigger than these bureaucracies, and we've got to be there for our vets and their mental health. Thank you, Governor. Uh, let's move on now, going back down to Donald Trump, cut number three, talking about DeSantis and Fauci. A shutdown in terms of COVID mm-hmm. or a shutdown in terms of budget? Because, you know, they're talking about a budget shutdown right now, but you're talking about a COVID shutdown. Correct. No, I wouldn't. And I never did. I let the governors make their decisions. And some of them, like from South Carolina, you know, Henry McMaster and, uh, frankly, uh, North Dakota, a few of them, Tennessee, they didn't shut down at all. Florida did shut down. Ron DeSanctis shut down. Or, as he's known, Ron DeSanctimonious. He... (laughs) He shut his state down very violently, actually, and shut the highways down, the roads down. But we had uh, I'm a federalist in a sense, because that's the federalist way. No, I didn't actually have a shutdown, despite the fact that some people wanted to and some people didn't want to. But we had some great governors and the governors that did the best job were Republican governors. And they were the ones that didn't shut down. Thank you. Thank you very much. Love you. Appreciate it. So, but, but a lot of people say, you know, that you listen too much to Dr. Fauci. Yeah. You were president at the time, could have perhaps influenced keeping things more open. And, of course, Ron DeSantis would, would definitely argue with your uh, characterization of how he handled it. But if you go back and look at the records, you will see that the biggest fan of Dr. Fauci was Ron DeSanctimonious. He was a big fan. He said, I go by exactly, quote, I go by what Dr. Fauci said. He said that two months in, all the way through, and then eventually changed when it wasn't, you know, that wasn't the dessert of the day. But Ron DeSantis was a big Dr. Fauci fan, and nobody wants to cover that. I say it every time. Uh, I don't care if he was or not, but, you know, when they hit me with this question, uh, Dr. Fauci uh, was not a huge factor in my administration. He became a much bigger factor in Biden's administration. I will come back with more from President Trump, Governor DeSantis, Ambassador Haley, plus guests from Eve Hedegger and Michael Owen, both coming in from Israel. The war got hot again. Lots going on this morning, including a ship seized in the Gulf of Oman by unknown black-robed uh, hijackers. We'll keep our eye on that on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt with laryngitis, but I did not want to miss today's conversation with Haviv Rediger of the Times of Israel. You can read Haviv over at timesofisrael.com. Good morning, Haviv. Good morning, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Can you open with a description? Uh, there's a lot of different messages in the United States. A third phase of the war, reservists being withdrawn, but missiles coming in. What is the state of the war that Americans ought to know? How many people are in Gaza? How many people are fighting? And, and what's the likelihood of a front on the third on the north? The war in Gaza is essentially two theaters. There's the northern theater, mostly Gaza City, and then there's the southern theater centered around Khan Yunus. Um, The northern uh, campaign, the northern half of the war, 
um, is way past uh, the ground maneuver. The Israeli military controls the above ground just about everywhere. And now we're looking at starting what I call the tunnel war, what some are calling the counterinsurgency. This is a long, drawn out, it's going to be many months at the very least, um, where we try and pull the last remaining few thousand Hamas fighters from tunnels in which they have been uh, for months. And in the south, in Khan Yunus, we are still in the, the above-ground maneuver. And so there is still an, um, efforts to uh, take the, you know, the above-ground um, parts of Khan Yunus and then begin that counterinsurgency and tunnel war. And we should expect the Khan Yunus battle to be much We've already seen the Khan Yunus battle be much more difficult than the battle in the north because Hamas has nowhere to flee. It fled from Gaza City down south, but now we're in the south. And so this is this is where I think the decisive battle for Gaza, where we will know in five months um, what it, whether Hamas can survive um, the Israeli attempt to destroy it in Gaza. Now, uh, Raviv, I describe as I don't know anything about Gaza except what I read. But I understand it to be about the size of the Beltway, so that if the IDF took Chevy Chase and northwestern Washington, D.C., and they've moved out to some parts of of Washington, D.C. proper, and they're trying to get to Alexandria, but all the trains are are shut down. The train, the subway system is basically where Gaza's Hamas terrorists are living. That's pretty difficult operation, isn't it? Yeah, I, I unfortunately don't know much about the Beltway, so I can't help you with that. But um, I, I think that um, we face Hamas has managed to make itself um, an enemy unlike any ever faced by any standing military. It is not a simple guerrilla force that attacks, strikes, does its terror attack, and then hides behind civilians. It's also not a standing army with territory in a state. It's some kind of a hybrid of the two. So it has the irresponsibility of a guerrilla war, of a guerrilla force. It attacks and then hides behind civilians and says, come get me. You're not going to be willing to kill the civilians required to get me, so I'm safe. But it also controlled Gaza for 17 years and bent all of Gaza's economy to build hundreds of kilometers of tunnels to hide in. And so what Hamas is, is essentially the kind of the challenge that you face with, with guerrilla, just in military terms, the challenge you face in guerrilla with guerrilla forces, but in order of magnitude larger, more difficult. It is dug in in a way ISIS never could dig in. It is dug in to an extent never seen before in the history of warfare. And that's why this tunnel war, the IDF already has had to innovate tremendously on the ground. And this tunnel war is going to take a long time. I have read that there are 132 estimated hostages uh, remaining in the control of the terrorists. That's an IDF number. Eight of them are Americans. We never hear the eight American names. We never see a story about it because President Bumble, my name for him, just doesn't want to talk about it. Have have people written them off in Israel? Absolutely not. Good. We had a long debate about hostages um, at the very beginning of the ground war back in late October. And the ground invasion began and the families of the hostages came to the defense minister and they said to Yoav Gallant and they said to him, have you have you killed our, our family members? Because now the ground war is beginning and we don't have the hostages. And he said to them, what is Israeli policy to this day and has proven itself above and beyond everyone's hopes and expectations. And that is Hamas cannot be allowed to drip out a hostage to avoid being destroyed in Gaza. We will not leave Hamas in Gaza. And so we can't play their game. 
what we need to do is put such massive military pressure on Hamas that to buy from us a day of, of respite, of survival, they will give us a significant number of hostages. The deal we saw in November for, I think it was seven days, yes. um, for 90 hostages, 90 Israeli hostages, and another certain number of, of, of also uh, foreign workers from Thailand and a few others, um, that vindicated Defense Minister Galan's policy, and that's the policy going forward. We know that Sinwar is hiding somewhere in Khan Yunis with hostages, and we know that he's planning to try to buy his own escape from Gaza at the last minute by handing us those hostages. And that's okay. We're willing for that deal to happen. But military pressure is the only thing that's going to get those hostages out. Before we get to our first break, can you give us a comprehensive review of what's going on in the North? The the average American who reads about this, me, I think there are 100,000 Israelis who cannot live in their homes. They're living in motels somewhere. Very difficult to have a, any kind of business going on up there. 40 rockets came over on the weekend, and Nasrallah has, has threatened more. What is the position in the north? What does Haviv Redegur think is going to happen there? Hezbollah is in a tough spot. It wants to look like it's leading the resistance against Israel in the name of all of Islam in the Muslim world. <clears throat> the problem is Iran doesn't want it destroyed. Because if it's destroyed, then it won't serve its purpose, which is to be a second front to um, push on Israel, to uh, deter Israel in an Iran-Israel war in the future. And so Iran says to them, sit tight. Hezbollah is ashamed of how it's essentially doing very little or nothing. Um, and Israel, for its part, is absolutely committed to removing the threat of Hezbollah because Hezbollah has built a Radwan force, as they call it. It's a branch of the Hezbollah military forces whose job is to do October 7 on a much larger scale on the northern border. What the uh, Nukba force of Hamas did on October 7, crossing the border, massacring Israeli civilians, Hezbollah has been planning it and putting videos online about its training for it. I mean, it's not hiding any of this uh, for for 10 years. And so we pulled out the people living just against the border. That would be hard to protect in that kind of an event. There are at least 100,000. I don't know the exact number, but that's a guesstimate. At least 100,000 Israeli troops added to the northern border to protect it from that eventuality. And eventually, Israel is going to have to solve that problem. And Hezbollah knows it. I think Hezbollah prefers to fight to force Israel into a two-front war if the war is coming. And I think the war is coming. Israel, of course, prefers to finish one and then move on to the next. Um, these genocidal movements on our borders used to be tolerable because we used to believe that they're deterred by our massive firepower. And we discovered on October 7th that they're not. And so if they're not deterrable, they're not they have tolerable. to be destroyed. Yeah. Now, the Israelis have lost 180 members of the IDF, maybe 181 this morning in the fighting since the massacre, 1,200 in the massacre, obviously, but 180 members of the IDF. And the Hamas people say they've had 28,000 people killed. The IDF confirms 8,500 terrorists killed. Is it a fair estimate to do a multiplier of 10 for any fallout war in the north for all those numbers? I think, yeah. I mean, in order in, in the, at that order of magnitude, maybe five, maybe ten. Um, the the civilian death toll in Lebanon will be lower because it's a larger area; it's much less densely populated. But Hezbollah has hidden every single one of its hundred fifty thousand rockets in its arsenal under the two hundred villages of South Lebanon. 
this isn't even an Israeli claim. Hezbollah is very proud of this. And so there is no way to protect Israel in South Lebanon. It is the same thing ISIS was doing in Iraq and Syria, hiding among civilians when the American campaign arrived to get rid of ISIS. It is the same thing Hamas is doing in Gaza. It is the idea that forcing us to cut through the civilian population to get to them will allow them to survive until we discover that they're not deterred. And so we can't allow these groups to survive. And so I mean, I've heard your, your colleague, Amanda, I've heard Amanda remark with other of your colleagues about the engineering marvel that is the Hamas tunnel system. And it's so close to the sea and it's so big and it's so vast. And they built it in 17 years. Hezbollah has been building it longer than that with more money from Iran and more expertise. It must be quite a barrier. As much as we can tell, it's uh, astonishing. Yeah. And, and, and tragic. Um, your government spends your tax dollars, sometimes efficiently, sometimes inefficiently, but it spends them on you. And um, Hezbollah has taken the economy it controls, Hamas even more so, because it really did fully control the economy of Gaza for 17 years and bent all of it to building this strategy, to turning Gaza into one vast trap of, for civilians and then launching the war in which the enemy feels they have no choice but to come through the civilians. So, yeah, Hezbollah is building underneath, and it's a horrific tragedy for now, Lebanon. Aviv, Hezbollah got- is now the main obstacle. Two minutes of the break. I want people, people are writing off a northern war. I'm not. I think it's coming. But in the United States, I'm afraid our politicians aren't talking about that. Tony Blinken makes statements. President Biden goes off script occasionally, makes us think that it's over. I think that's profoundly wrong for Americans to think. What do you think Americans ought to be thinking about in terms of how long shooting, fighting, killing is going on on both sides, on north and south? I think the Israelis would like uh, to compartmentalize. You solve the problem of Hamas in Gaza. Then you move on to other problems. So in that sense, there could be some time before the war in the north. Um, We cannot live next to Hezbollah. We used to be able to. After October 7, we learned things that we have a humility. We don't think we understand their psychology anymore. We don't think they're deterred, and therefore we can't. The very fact that the Israeli government is paying the hotel bills of 100,000 Israelis who for three months haven't been home tells you the Israeli government plans to solve this problem. I hope and I believe that it'll be piecemeal. It'll be one at a time. It'll be contained. Uh, the Biden administration has said, don't, don't set the region on fire have contained specific targeted wars with with as as many uh, as a low a civilian death toll as as possible do it smart do it slow that's why we're supporting you that's why we're backing you up and i think that's the wise policy for israel as well why would we fight all the iranian proxies all at once that's what iran wants why wouldn't we fight them one at a time lop them off and then face a much weaker Iran after we've bled them dry for 10 years but we are looking at a 10 year long war in the region against this immense infrastructure that Iran has built around us as a noose to destroy us. Ten years. Write that down, America. Ten years. I'm going to talk with Aviv during the break from the radio show, and I'll put it on my podcast, and he'll be back on the radio show after the break. Don't go anywhere, America, except over to Hugh Hewitt, my new Fox News column on what a second Biden term would look like. It's also linked over at X, my website. Stay tuned. Aviv Redigur will be right back with me on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 
Welcome back. I'm with Haviv Rediger from Israel. Haviv, I am not paying much attention or covering much this proceeding in The Hague before I believe the International Court, the Criminal Court. I think it's a joke. I think it's a carnival. But the one thing I would do is I would show that 45-minute tape before every session for the benefit of the panel of judges hearing this and the audience. Has that happened yet? I don't think that's uh, happened. I don't know if that's part of Israel's legal strategy. There's some phenomenal uh, legal minds defending Israel there. It's hard for Israelis to take it seriously just because if uh, the main case that South Africa is making that Israel is committing genocide is a lot of bombastic talk by Israeli leaders. Some of them people um, who are very extreme and who I dislike very much, and I deeply wish they didn't talk that way because it makes my country look bad. And so it's not that I disagree with South Africa that these are horrific statements. It's that I disagree with South Africa that they represent the will of the Israeli people and the policies of the Israeli government. And I I also disagree with South Africa that it doesn't know that. In other words, that should be so utterly obvious. Now, if Israel genuinely clears Gaza of civilian populations and never allows them to return, it did this crime that is a crime under Israeli law. But that is not what is going to happen. No matter how many far-right extremist people on the edge of the edge of the edge of Israeli politics you can find who said such things. Uh, Defense Minister Gallant, for example, at one point said... um, I I forget the exact quote, but it was something very dramatic. We're going to get them all and we're going to destroy them. And then 50 separate times he said Hamas is the enemy, not the Palestinians, over three months. And he's the man actually running the war. Now, which is the Israeli policy? President Obama, when America went into Iraq and Syria to go after ISIS, said, we're going to uproot that cancer. Now, Is President Obama talking about destroying civilizations or is he talking about ISIS being a terrible, awful, evil thing that we have to uproot from this place? There were tens of thousands of civilian dead in the American campaign against ISIS. But obviously that wasn't the American purpose in that campaign. And so the whole idea is that there's now going to be a law of war that says Israel's not allowed to fight wars. It's a real simple equation, Hugh. If Hamas survives this, and if it's seen to survive it because international law tells Israel to stop, then the general policy of Hamas, the one strategy Hamas has, it is all Hamas has done for 15 years now of putting civilians at a mass scale in harm's way will be the strategy everyone applies. On this court sit a representative of Russia, a representative of China, a representative of Morocco. These are people who are going to tell us the laws of war and truth and justice. With with respect, it's, it's not even that I don't want there to be a good, real, serious, profound international law. And I want Israeli military leaders to know there is a law. There's an Israeli law of war. We are signatories to Fourth Geneva Convention. But... This isn't that. No, it's not. This That's why I'm very so glad the United States does not is not a party to this convention. It is a bad piece of international law. I teach it every year in con law. And people, I, I, I just hope they get a chance to show the so-called judges who are simply political actors the film. I'm coming right back on the radio show with Aviv Rediger to talk about politics in Israel and the government in Israel. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. There are two Israeli cabinets, a big one and a little one that counts. The little one has Prime Minister Netanyahu, 
Defense Minister Gallant and Senior Minister Benny Gantz in it. They make the decisions about the war. There are three observers in that as well. That's all I listen to because the rest is politics. Haviv, are those three on the same page, and how are their reputations individually faring during this? I think, if I read it correctly, the Prime Minister done in politics once a commission comes through. Second, Gallant might not be, and third, Gantz definitely is. What do you think? That's roughly it. Um, we have um, interesting polling on public trust. Um, Gallant has massive public trust. He was defense minister on October 7. October 7 happened on his watch. And he said that. He got up in front of the nation and he said, this is this is on me. I am responsible for this. That is something that we also heard from the chief of staff, from the head of the Shabak, from the head of the of I believe the head of the Mossad as well, um, and and all the way down the chain of command, uh, people took responsibility. And after the war, there will be a reckoning for all these leaders. Um, the only person in the chain of command, it has to be said, uh, the only person in the chain of command on October 7 who has never, ever taken responsibility f- was Benjamin Netanyahu. And his public trust looks that way. There are polls that show that um, that ask Israelis, do you think that this particular member of the war cabinet uh, is dealing mostly with the war or mostly politicking? With, with Gallant, it's 90-10 dealing with the war. That's a huge amount of trust. With Gantz, it's 80-20 dealing with the war. Gantz was a member of the opposition who came in to stabilize the government so it could fight the war. With Netanyahu, it's 60-40 the other way, or even more, 65-35 the other way. And so it's really low levels of trust. Do those three work well together in what we do not see? I know they don't do press conferences occasionally. There's obviously tension. But when it comes down to the map and the movement and the decision, for example, to strike Hezbollah in the north, which I've heard Gallant threaten, and I believe Gantz has as well, are they in agreement? Who's the most devish of them? Who's the most hawkish of them? I have seen um, uh, what I have, from what I have seen. Obviously, no, none of us are inside the meeting. But from what I have seen, the work is good. It's coherent. Uh, it's not politics. There's no screaming. There's no leaking from the war cabinet, unlike the larger cabinet where all these little side politicians are constantly leaking. And so it's a useless forum. Nobody can actually have any decisions or debates in it. Uh, but the, the five-member war cabinet, uh, it includes also Ron Dermer and Gadi Eisenkot, who's a former chief of staff, and he's with Gantz's party. Um, but inside there, the work is good and solid and serious. It essentially falls to two different jobs. Netanyahu and Gantz hold the political window open. They keep the political system stable so that Gallant can fight the war. Gallant is actually the man leading the actual war effort itself. And that's basically the rules, and, and they're doing it well. Before they order a 1967-style preemptive attack on Hezbollah, would all five of those people have to agree, or just a majority of the three, or just the prime minister? The five-member war cabinet doesn't exist under law. It's a convention. It's uh, something that Netanyahu just convenes every time. Uh, What exists legally is the larger war cabinet, and it does have to approve a war. It doesn't have to approve a smaller operation. It has to approve a war. It's a little bit vague and Politicians play games with these vaguenesses, just like, you know, uh, President Truman launched the Korean War, but didn't declare war so he wouldn't have to go through the Senate. So it was a U.N. police action, technically, the Korean War. So that kind of pulling of the edges and trying to figure out how we work without having to go through other. It happens also in Israel. That larger war cabinet is the one in power to actually declare war. The good news uh, from the perspective of anyone who wants to see an Israeli war with Hezbollah, and I do, but I want to see a specific kind and not right now. But nevertheless, the good news is Hezbollah has declared war on Israel. 
And the, the state of war already exists. And so the Israeli ability to ramp up and, and ha- commit to military action against Hezbollah doesn't require a whole lot of legal loopholes. Oh, no, and the U.N. has already that. declared that they should be behind the Latani River. They're not. They're in violation of a 2006 or 2007 resolution. Last question of the public mood in Israel. Reservists are coming home. Do they expect to go back to war? Is the economy picking up? How do you personally feel about the situation? Public mood is strong. Public mood is stable. Public mood is only going to turn sour if there's a feeling that Hamas might not be kicked out, if there's a feeling that there isn't the resolve in the political class to get the job done. That's the public mood, and it's not going anywhere. Um, The economy is strong. This is costing us a lot. Obviously, economically, it might cost a lot more. But we are one of the most fiscally responsible countries in the world. We have a debt-to-GDP ratio of I think 45, 50%, wow. which I think America has 120% or something we like that. We're more fiscally responsible than Germany, which is famously. So we can borrow for decades uh, to finance this. We are, as an economy, going to be okay. That is great to know. Haviv, good to talk to you. Thank you for a half hour of your time. Haviv Redigur can be followed on Twitter on X at Haviv, H A V I V R E T I G G U R. Or simply go to Times of Israel. Listen to their daily podcast as well. Times of Israel is free. It is available to everyone. and It is up to date always with the facts. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I've got laryngitis, but I've also got Dr. Michael Oren with me from Israel. Dr. Oren, it's Thursday. There must be an American cabinet member in Israel messing things up. What's going on? That's uh, first of all, hi. Be well, Hugh. You sound like I feel. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, it's rainy and cold and miserable. And we all have colds here. Um, uh, let's get. We'll get to uh, Tony Blinken in a second in his visit in his um, very unforgettable uh, news uh, conference last night. Press conference. I just want to introduce you to somebody. I'm here shooting a film called October seventh, two thousand twenty-three for TBN. And the uh, director and producer is my good friend Dan Gordon. Come in, Dan. Dan and I were in the army together. Hey, Dan. Uh, even though Welcome. he looks much, much. Hey, he is the author, the author of uh, great movies like Hurricane, Wyatt Earp, and Rambo. Yeah. And Rambo. This is, this is actually Rambo. I, I look forward to the movie, Dan. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's going to be a uh, four-part uh, limited series for TBN. Oh, very great. I really look forward to that. we got to keep Americans educated, especially as this criminal trial goes underway at the world court, this joke of a trial. Oh, it's not. Yeah, I wish it were a joke. It's just it isn't a joke. I just listened to the to the, to the South African prosecutor, getting, you know, raking us over the coals. Just it was so disturbing, so disturbing. In the middle of this, the visit of the secretary of state uh, to Israel last night um, with two very disturbing messages. OK, the first message is relating to us. He comes out of this very long meeting uh, with Israeli leaders. They do not they cannot reach a joint statement, which is always a bad sign. Uh, the meeting went on very long, about three times longer than it was planned. Still no joint statement and comes out with a very long list of demands uh, for Israel, most of which Israel cannot meet. All right. The demand that, uh, you know, we somehow reduce uh, casualties on the Palestinian side as if it's all up to us, as if, as if we're fighting against ourselves. We're not fighting against an enemy there. 
Um, two, um, letting Palestinian refugees from the south come back up north while the biting is still going on. And you know that when the refugees come back up north, there's going to be Hamas terrorists among them and it's going to cost us uh, soldiers' lives. Uh, that ain't going to happen. Uh, a commitment to a two-state solution involving the Palestinian Authority. Absurd. Uh, which, by the way, he said has to be revamped, but he didn't say anything about Palestinian authorities teaching their kids how to murder Jews, Palestinian authority paying terrorists in Israeli jails, Palestinian authorities head Mahmoud Abbas, who is a is, is an unabashed Holocaust denier and anti-Semite. None of that, okay? Um, demand after demand after demand. Uh, almost nothing of the Palestinians. So that was that was one message. And, and if I could read between the lines, it's very disturbing because if I'm a, a Hamas leader listening to the secretary of state, what I'm hearing is I got to dig my heels in harder and get the Israelis to kill more Palestinians so that that will undermine U.S.-Israel relations because that was the message, literally the message. Uh, the other message was um, Secretary Blinken, and you know I have a very high regard for him, both personally and professionally, but he went around the Middle East uh, broadcasting fear, saying the United States fears the the Israel-Hamas battle will uh, will mushroom snowball into a regional conflict. Um, this is at a time when the United States is doing its utmost not to return fire uh, to the Houthi rebels, Iranian-backed rebels who are closing one of the most important waterways in the world, not really firing back at the uh, Shiite uh, Iranian-backed militias firing at American troops in Syria and Iraq. So if you're in Iran and you are either a Russian or Chinese backer of Iran, and you hear this, what are you thinking? Are you going to de-escalate? Or are you going to escalate? I ask you. Um, You're going to escalate. And, so the message, and, and to uh, this morning, you may not have seen uh, President Bumble has not made it. He might not be awake yet. But um, a oil tanker has been hijacked in the, in the Red Sea by an unknown group of individuals wearing black. It sounds more Iranian than it does Houthi to me, but they're both well-qualified. And we, we won't get any message from President Bumble or Secretary of State Bumble or Secretary of Defense Bumble because they're bumbling around. Well, listen, the message, I'm not going to go bumbling, but I'll tell you that the message of one is fear. Now, I understand the fear. They don't want to get caught up in a military entanglement in, the, in election year. I can understand that. But uh, the fate of nations are hanging in the balance here. And uh, the message we'd like to see would be, uh, A, Israel is involved. We know Israel is involved in a complex, desperate, uh, morally challenging war. But we're standing with Israel four square. The other message is uh, we aren't afraid. It's the Iranians should be afraid. And the Russians and Chinese backers should be afraid. That's the message that we would like to hear. Uh, instead, we heard the opposite. Now, the message I have heard, I talked about this with Aviv Redigur last hour, is Secretary of Defense, Defense Secretary Gallant, has said repeatedly, either you move back to the Latani River and comply with UN Security Council resolution from 2006, Hezbollah, or we will attack you. I know you were an advocate early on of attacking Hezbollah, but I've heard it enough times, and that the only person who may not be in favor of it is Netanyahu. What is the... What is your view of what will happen on the northern border if Hezbollah keeps up these barges and does not move back to the Latani, barrages, and doesn't move back to the Latani? Well, here's my fear, and I think it's a very grounded fear, that Hezbollah is simply waiting until our army is bogged down in Gaza, tired, uh, very low on ammunition. I can't stress that enough, low on ammunition, and then they'll strike. And what we're doing is forfeiting uh, the, uh, the ability to strike first, which would be absolutely crucial. And now um, Hezbollah has actually outfired Hamas in terms of the rocket it has launched against the northern part of the country. 
with a relatively small part, uh, force, Hezbollah is keeping half of the IDF bogged down and a, a whole entire chunk of this country, the northern part of the chunky, uninhabitable. Now, that is a totally, uh, a totally intolerable situation for any sovereign country, any sovereign country. And on top of that, we're going to forfeit our, our military latitude. And my fear is I understand the administration wants to get us involved in a, in a diplomatic uh, process uh, involving Amos Hochstein, a very uh, capable diplomat that is somehow going to get uh, Hezbollah to conform with 1701, UN Resolution 1701 from 2006, right? What leverage the United States is going to bring to bear to get Hezbollah to do this is a mystery to me. But even if it could do it, it's not going to make a big difference. The Tiny River is about five miles from the border. You know, that's nothing in terms of these missiles, nothing. And even we know that, uh, that Iran continued, that Hezbollah continues to build tunnels, the tunnels under the border. It, it's not that significant, that withdrawal. Um, so my fear is that once we go into this diplomatic process, it becomes like, you know, the Hotel California, because you can check in, you can't check out. And once we check tell in, me, tell process, our audience a little bit about the Defense Secretary. Gallant. I believe you served in the same party with him. I believe his reputation is high in Israel and his reputation is high in the United States. He seems like a very serious guy. Will he pull the trigger if it's time to go after Hezbollah? You know, you know, I've said this before in this program. We all know who the commander in chief of the U.S. military is, but very few people know who the commander in chief of the IDF is. And it's not the prime minister. It's not the defense minister. It's not the chief of staff. It's the Israeli government. And more broadly, it's the Israeli people. Now, we go to war on the basis of consensus, not on the, executive, not on the basis of executive fiat. So Gallant can't give the order. Uh, the government has to give the order. In a way, the Israeli people have to approve it. I think the Israeli people are there already. Uh, but it means uh, standing up to the United States. It does. It means saying, you know, thank you for support, but this is what we have to do to save ourselves. And it also means we're going to have to do some serious thinking about the ammunition situation. Uh, as you know, there's a, a global shortage, uh, certainly in the Western world, uh, of ammunition because of Ukraine. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, Hugh, if we have to throw rocks at these people, we'll throw rocks. The tunnel system in Gaza, in Gaza, has been described as an engineering marvel. What does that make you think about the tunnel system in southern Lebanon? It's probably more of a marvel. First of all, his uh, Hamas learned tunnel digging from Hezbollah. And in the past, we've discovered very big tunnels. Now, it's different. It's a different challenge because the, the earth under Gaza is sandy. And the land under the northern border is rock. So on one hand, it, it, it makes it more difficult to dig the tunnels, but it also makes them more impregnable and difficult to, uh, to uncover and to explode and to, and to demolish. So um, there have been rumors floating around this country now for weeks that there are many more tunnels on the northern border that haven't been discovered. Some of them quite long. I've heard a rumor, but one extending all the way from Beirut. Um, I don't doubt it. I really don't. Uh, well, the well that's unacceptable. Not- that will only get oh. worse. That will only get worse. So my, my closing question this week, Dr. Oren, uh, would you be surprised if you woke up tomorrow and the IAF, the Israeli Air Force, was bombing southern Lebanon and a repeat of the 82 Lebanon war, not the not the eight, 2006 Lebanon war or eight. That was a disaster. They, they didn't get anything done. But 182, they ended up 1982. They ended up in Beirut and they didn't know they were going to Beirut. Yeah, well, I was there. Um, Dan and I were in 2006 together. Uh, so, you know, we're talking uh, personally. Um, and I've also gone on record, I think you've seen that, that, that I think a majority of Israelis would agree with a 1982 type solution to Gaza. 
You remember at the conclusion when we had surrounded Beirut, uh, yes. we let the PLO and Yasser Arafat get a bunch of boats and go off to Tunis. I'd say if we get these guys onto a boat, you know, Sinwar and his buddies onto a boat and they give us back the hostages, uh, I think Israel would agree to that. I don't think Sinwar would agree to it. I think he wants to die a martyr uh, to the very end. But that would be a solution. And I understand when I first floated this idea in an interview with the uh, Wall Street Journal several months ago, now the Israeli government is seriously considering it. I just don't know if the other side is going to accept it. Now, I, I've got time for one more. It seems to me that you are methodically, you being the IDF, picking off two of the top five commanders of Hamas in Gaza and a couple of the top guys in Hezbollah and another top guy in Hamas. I don't expect that to flag or fail. Do you? I don't. I don't. But listen, we haven't gotten to the top guys yet. And uh, from what we understand here, the top guys have surrounded themselves with an inner human shield of Israeli hostages which makes it you know, doubly, doubly difficult to get to them, not only underground in, in these, these hidden chambers, but they're surrounded by hostages. It's going to be a huge challenge. A huge you, know, challenge you know, Michael, there are eight Americans be. among the 132 Israeli captives. We never hear their names here. Why do you think that is? Well, not, not for far fault. I think in our, in our perspective, there's reluctance on the part of the Israeli government to broadcast the fact that there are people of dual nationals, because that creates a situation where we're basically saying those na- those dual nationals have a have a greater value than the people who only have Israeli nationality. And I know this because I've been dealing with hostage situations since since October 8th. Um, so but that is not why the United States hasn't made uh, a more of an issue about it. And that you're going to have to ask either the NSC or the State Department spokespeople. I, I'm very disappointed. I know that it's not politic for Israelis to criticize the Biden administration, but all they've done is walk back support from day one. They were strong for the first week, a little bit less strong in the second week. We're now entering month four, and they're not very strong at all. Do you share my opinion? Well, having all said it, the two major, the two major issues which are paramount to point to us is, one, that they continue to cast the vetoes in the Security Council, that they continue the supply of vital ammunition, particularly tank ammunition. That's so far they've done. What I understood between the lines of the Secretary of State last night was that these two vital you know, lifelines are not... If they did that, they would break the Democratic Party. I'm convinced. Dr. Michael Oren, follow him on Twitter at x.drmichaeloren. Thank you for joining me in my voice-challenged way. I'll be right back. America, stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt with laryngitis, but Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska joins me. He knows that laryngitis doesn't feel bad. It just sounds bad. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back. Good morning, Hugh. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We're all looking at Saturday at 1.30 in Cleveland. I think this is the year, not in Cleveland, in Houston. What do you think? I think they're going the distance. This is the year. And, you know, look, Flacco gets a lot of great press for his consistency. It's a great story. But as you know, the, the issue with the Browns is number one defense in the NFL, and that's critical. They are just, uh, if they stay healthy, I'll see you at the Super Bowl. You will, and you might see me at the Cleveland uh, game. If the three wild cards win, Cleveland will host its first ever playoff game since 1999's return. I will be there. Senator Sullivan, I want to get to a bunch of things, but I want to start. You're active in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. If any colonel or above or Navy captain above had gone missing from their command billet for six days without telling either their senior commander or their deputy commander that they were gone, would they have already been relieved? Uh, I think so. And and look, with the secretary, you know, there's the issue of um, 
letting Congress know, and that's important. We're a co-equal branch of government. But what I've been saying is what's shocking, I mean, and it is shocking, uh, the president didn't know, the national security advisor didn't know, the deputy secretary of defense who um, was ostensibly in charge didn't know. And we're not saying it directly like this, Hugh, but the United States is at war. We got troops in combat right now. We got troops under fire uh, all across the Middle East. And that element of what's happening with Secretary Austin that nobody in the Pentagon and chain of command knew, um, I'm meeting with the Indo-PACOM commander later this morning. It's uh, unbelievable. Yeah, I, I just think he should be gone uh, because it's not fair to have two standards, one for uniform military and one for politicals. Secondly, Senator Sullivan, this morning, uh, the headline in the Times of Israel, tanker in the Gulf of Oman seas boarded by unauthorized men in uniform. It's an oil taker and military style black uniforms on Thursday morning. It's been hijacked. Now, number one, can you do with an oil taker what you did with an airplane on 9-11? And two, what do we do about retaking this? But the entire approach to what's happening in the Middle East, particularly as it relates to the Red Sea um, with the uh, maritime assets, either ours, which are being regularly fired on by the Houthis, or the hijacking of commercial vessels, has been a classic case of Biden administration appeasement. As you know, and I'm certainly, I'm, I'm almost certain this will be the case on this one, the Iranians are behind everything, everything, Hugh, that's happening in the Middle East, whether it's the Houthis or Hamas or Hezbollah, Iran, the terrorists in Iran are behind it. And there was a headline in yesterday's paper that we're contemplating retaliating against the Houthis. I got a briefing yesterday, very senior intel briefing yesterday, and um, look, we could take out almost everything that they're doing in terms of firing on our uh, Navy ships. And so we just have to have much more of a resolute approach, particularly to Iran, saying this is going to stop and the pinpricks have to stop. And it has to be very significant retaliation. It's one of the great things the Trump administration did. They reestablished deterrence with regard to Iran, by killing Soleimani, but by showing, hey, you you go after Americans, you try to kill Americans, we're going to triple the pain on you guys. And right now, this administration doesn't do it. They they kind of wring their hands in public, and it's only creating um, more chaos. Weakness is provocative, and this is exhibit A for that with Biden. Well, people remember the movie with Tom Hanks about the uh, the freighter that was taken off Somalia. That was a big ocean. This is a little gulf. I think you can steer an oil tanker, and it's an oil tanker. I don't know if you can exploit an oil tanker, but I'm worried about the uses to which an oil tanker can be put. Do you have any idea about those, Senator? Well, look, it's a really important question. And when you mention 9-11, you know, what, one of the many things about 9-11 is that nobody really thought through kind of, hey, someone... A bad guy can use a commercial aircraft for terrorism, right? And we woke up that, you know, beautiful morning in September realizing that uh, these terrorists uh, have creative methods. And we learned that, yeah, a commercial airliner can be used as a terrorist 
weapon against thousands of Americans. So I think the way you're thinking about this, Hugh, is really smart, and we got to try to get in their mindset. But absolutely, a tanker could be used in a way that uh, could harm U.S. interests and kill people and create chaos. So yeah, the fifth fleet is over there at Bahrain, and uh, I don't know how much oil an oil tanker carries or if it's uh, unflammable or if it's possible to turn into a bomb, but I imagine we have eyes on it. Now we're going to need an order from a secretary of defense, so I don't know if he's home from the hospital. It's a mess. President Bumble and his administration is a mess. Let but me turn. I, I wrote a fl- want, Just real quick on that, the fifth fleet. We have assets, and we have our great military capabilities who are trained, whether it's Marine uh, recon and special operators or Navy SEALs, who are trained um, incredibly well to take down um, maritime vessels, right? We could go in there and take that down, kill the terrorists who are on that um, uh, ship, uh, you know, as soon as the order is given. We have, we have a great military that does the trains for that mission all the time. I think that's important for people to know. Now, I want to turn to uh, the great mentioner has you on the list of people who could be a great vice presidential candidate for Donald Trump. I'm sure I don't know if you've read my column this morning. I list his whole administration. I'm tired of the Donald Trump would be a dictator stuff. I don't know if he's going to be the nominee. I'm in Switzerland. I haven't endorsed anyone. I'll cover them all. They're all welcome here. But if he is the nominee, I'll support him. And I just think it's silly to think he's going to be a dictator. And I list the kind of people who would work for them, including you. Uh, what do you make of the list? What do you make of the idea that he'd be a dictator? No, I think the idea that he'd be a dictator is ridiculous. And what what what's happening? Look, I'm the senator from Alaska. Right? You want to talk about a dictator? Biden every damn day is issuing some new executive order, usually uh, expressly lawless, to shut down my state. Um, I think the Democrats need to look in the mirror on what this current administration is doing in terms of abusing the law, whether it's the daily barrage of shutting down Alaska through lawless means, whether it's things like, you know, the student loan debt um, cancellation, which the U.S. Supreme Court said, hey, you can't do. And they said, yeah, thank you very much. We're going to keep doing it. I mean, the list on the Biden issues of being lawless is so long and it's happening right now. It's happening right now. Nobody talks about that. So I think the Democrats need to look in the mirror when they talk about an executive who's abusing the rule of law. And my state is ground zero for that. I, I got the longest damn list you can imagine, Hugh. Well, let me go to energy specifically. Energy is a big policy. I want Dan Brulette back at energy because he knows what he's doing. He was a very good secretary of energy. We're hearing from Democrats. We've got the all-time largest production, so don't worry. Biden's doing it. They don't realize energy is a forward-looking market. Do you believe that Joe Biden's defense of his record on oil production will be successful in the fall? No, absolutely not. And, you know, look, again, my state is ground zero during the Trump administration. I worked hard in the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act to get ANWR open. They've essentially come out, and it, the law mandates two lease sales. It doesn't say you can think about it. It says there shall be two lease sales on ANWR. The Biden administration came out, canceled one. They just said, hey, you didn't consult well enough, and said, eh, we're probably not going to do the second one. I mean, that's lawlessness. We have something called the National Petroleum Reserve of Alaska, NPRA, we call it, set aside for oil and gas development by the Congress over seven years ago. They're locking up the whole thing. So 
Um, you're exactly right. Energy markets are forward-looking. It's a giant source of American strength and power, our ability to unleash American energy all over the world. And these guys from day one attacked it. And so, um, and the American people know that. It's why prices at the pump have gone up so much. So this is a unilateral surrender on one of the greatest assets we have in terms of American power that other countries, particularly the Chinese, Xi Jinping is scared to death of American global energy dominance. I have to break in with breaking news, Senator, breaking news. Iran has confirmed to the AP that its Navy seized the oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman. Iran seized it. How does that change the equation? Yeah, look, I think we need to just up the ante. And um, we Iran has um, oil and gas assets right now that are very important to them that we could take out in one hour. And um, to me, like I said at the top of the, this uh, show, Hugh, um, deterrence has completely failed with these guys, and they need to reestablish deterrence. And unfortunately, the longer they've waited, the harder it is to reestablish it. But a pinprick right now um, is not going to be appropriate. We need to send Marines or Navy SEALs to seize that ship back kill the Iranian terrorists on it. We have the capability to do that. And then up the ante in terms of deterrence on things that really matter to them, like their oil and gas sector. I remember Operation Praying Manus. You're too young, Senator Sullivan. Uh, Ronald Reagan sank almost the entire Iranian Navy in one day. Should we do something like that? Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things, as I mentioned, that they're very vulnerable uh, right now is all their refining capability. And, um, that is a huge source of their power, and we could take that out in, you know, as I mentioned, a couple hours. So, uh, Do you think they want a wider war? Let, let, let's close with this. Do you think Iran, given all that they've done and paid for and agreed to and winked at, and now they're actively seizing ships, do you think they want a war? Uh, I don't think they want a war. Um, I think Iran usually operates through its proxies. So this is an escalation, Hugh, the, the news that you're breaking right now, that they're actually claiming that they're doing it. That's very unusual for them. They usually operate through their proxies. But remember all the hand-wringing when President Trump ordered the uh, killing of uh, Soleimani. Soleimani. The Democrats were saying, this is going to bring a wider war. What have you done? You've unleashed this. And that didn't happen at all. And what it did was it reestablished deterrence. Remember, Soleimani... And the Quds Force were responsible for the killing and wounding of over 2,000 Americans. They thought they could kill Americans with impunity. We need to disabuse them of the, that idea, and I think the time is now. Well, the AP report, they're very rarely wrong. If they say Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Good morning. Morning glory to America. Greetings to Canada. Bonjour. Hi. I still have laryngitis, but I'm going to get through one more hour. It should be a little bit better tomorrow. Josh Kroshauer joins me. He is the editor of Jewish Insider, longtime man around Washington, D.C. Good morning, Josh. First, your reaction to last night, Governor DeSantis, Ambassador Haley debate and to former President Trump's town hall on Fox. What did you make of both events? So I think the headline showed uh, out of the DeSantis Haley debate showed that, you know, this is why Trump has such a commanding lead nationally. And I don't know if it was the smartest idea for the two challengers to Trump to just go after each other so mercilessly. I, I didn't think it was the most um, newsworthy of debates that you had Nikki Haley repeating so many times her website uh, talking about DeSantis lying and DeSantis was attacking Nikki Haley's record at South Carolina, not being conservative enough. I mean, is this if, you, if, if, if Republicans are looking for uh, someone to move on past Trump, I don't think watching the two hours of the CNN debate is going to make DeSantis or Haley look any better. Um, look, the Trump I, I caught parts of the Trump town hall on at the same time on, on Fox. Um, look, that Trump Trump uh, uh, that that's Trump is a performer. And I thought he uh, you know held himself quite well uh, at the at the at the town hall and the bits I, I caught. You know, look, if you like Trump, you're going to like him more after watching that. If you don't like that, Trump, it's going to underscore all the reasons. You my assessment. Like but my assessment at this point, three person race. Vivek doesn't matter. Governor Christie dropped out. So Ron DeSantis has to win or come in a very strong second in Iowa or he's done. Nikki Haley has to win uh, New Hampshire or she's done. Do you agree with my assessment? Yeah, pretty, pretty much. I would say Haley has or Haley has to win New Hampshire. She has to win her home state of South Carolina after that. And I think she gets momentum, as you note, Hugh, by finishing ahead of DeSantis in, in Iowa. And yeah, DeSantis now- needs to come. Closer to, DeSantis needs to come closer to Trump than the polls suggest in Iowa to get momentum for his campaign. Yeah, so I think we are going to end up, quite surprisingly, with a two-person race. Uh, I could be wrong. It could be DeSantis-Trump, but we are going to end up with a two-person race. It's probably going to be Haley-Trump. But there's this mountain out there called Super Tuesday with a lot of winner-take-all primaries. Even if, like, best-case scenario for the ambassador, she wins New Hampshire, she wins South Carolina, uh, she does okay in Florida. Well, that's on Super Tuesday. What happens on Super Tuesday? Yeah, you've got a lot of states, many of them favor, but a lot of southern states, Alabama, my home state of Virginia. Um, you know, the, 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 the I, you and I are both football fans, and watching Nikki Haley's campaign, even in a best-case scenario, is like watching the scoreboard and hoping that a bunch of teams lose. And a lot of, a lot of things outside of your control happen to get your, your team just to, to get into the playoffs. So Nikki Haley needs to, we, we outlined the scenario where Haley needs to get to South Carolina, win her home state, and then hope hope for some good luck. Maybe hope that Trump's legal tr- troubles worsen, or maybe something uh, kind of changes. It, there are a few open primaries um, where you have similar dynamics to New Hampshire. Uh, Virginia's an open primary. Uh, Michigan's coming up on, on the early side of things. Uh, that's going to be one where perhaps Haley's campaign can Look at the McCain model in 2000. Look at where you may have some more moderate Republican voters in, in the electorate. But I think you, you're hitting on the main point, for you, which is that even if Haley does get the vaunted one on one matchup against Trump, the reality is, you know, she's sort of she has a ceiling with more more of the moderate college educated Republican voters. And I don't know if that gets you 
to 50% in a lot of those Super Tuesday states. Yeah, it's not 2012. It's not 2008. It's not 2000. It's not 1996. It's a different set of rules with Donald Trump. Uh, In today's Fox News column, I wrote a fantasy draft of the Trump cabinet and White House staff for a second term. I did that because I'm tired of the Donald Trump would be a fascist. All of these people would serve as asked. All of them that I proposed for Senate confirmation would get confirmed. I don't know if you've had a a chance to see it, Josh. It's not illegal to do this. The old myth that it's illegal only goes to 18 U.S.C. 599, offering someone a job in return for support. That's not what this is. Do you think you had to do this to put, you know, 60 people in the field raising money and doing events for him who are more than just, quote, surrogates? Well, look, it's basically what Trump did in 2016 when he, number one, uh, you know, put a list of, of, of Supreme Court nominees that 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 uh, a lot of conservatives found as the top candidates. And many of them ended up getting picked by Trump on, on the Supreme Court. Um, you also had, you know, Pence as sort of a, a pick as, as running mate to, to build that Republican coalition. And I, I read your column, Hugh. It's a it's a good list of some of the top talent in, in the Republican Party right now. It, it bridges the gap between the more traditional Republicans and some of the more MAGA oriented Republicans. Uh, I, I think the big question is, um, you know, what, what who, personnel is, is, is policy and, and who is Trump going to pick? Is it going to be look, look more like some of the picks we saw in 26 or, you know, when he was serving his first term where he did rely on a lot of conventional, traditional old hands in Washington? Or are we going to see, you mentioned Stephen Miller, um, Chris Rufo in the column. Um, are we going to see sort of more of the new right figures that have emerged uh, as more influ- influential players in Washington? So I note that Stephen Miller would be the toughest confirmation uh, because, uh, but if they send him to OPM, he can get a lot done on the permanent administrative state. Everybody else is confirmable. Chris Rufo might might be a lift, but everyone else. Arthur Brooks would get confirmed. Mike Pompeo. People can go read the list for themselves. I posted it enough. But my question to you, Josh, if you've got a credential group of people that you've put a list out, I'm going to use these 20 people, they all go to an event. They all raise money. They all get news. They can all appear on cable news. They're not just another talking head. It's never been done before. Is it time to try it, particularly in a circumstance where the former president will be in and out of court a lot? Uh, Well, look, if if, if Trump, I I, I don't think the issue this time around is convincing Republican voters that, that, you know, you're on the fence about Trump and, you know, you're trying to figure out whether he's going to pick some solid people in the, in the cabinet. I think, I think ultimately people are, are, have decided that the Republicans that were worried about Trump are either now Biden voters or they're, you know, Trump voters. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of wiggle room in between, but look, I, I do think it does set a tone for how we can think about a, a second term of Donald Trump's presidency if he gets elected. And we talk about, we, 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 you know, when we talk about politics, we tend to personalize, you know, it's about Biden versus Trump, but a lot of it is about the cabinet and a lot of it is about the administration. And one of the big questions, I, I think, looking ahead to, to a general election between Biden and Trump, if that's what it is, is, is Trump going to, you know, reject some of the, the some of the more experienced lawmakers reject some of the old hands that you mentioned in your in your in your column queue and go in a much more um kind of anti-establishment direction or is is he going to you know build a broad coalition of the republican party which is a smart political plan? first you've got to win and to win you've got to campaign and raise money and if you're making court appearances you can do a town hall last, last night it was very effective last night josh i let's talk about that i thought he was Good Trump last night. Funny, witty, on spot, 
Tough questions. The abortion question from the audience was a very tough one that he handled, I thought, diplomatically. How did you rate him last night? Scale of one to ten, Trump one being the first debate with Biden and ten being his best debate in the primary. So with the caveat that I was flipping back and forth because between the two debates, what I saw, I, I, that you're right, Hugh, that that was sort of the charming uh, Trump that people you know saw on TV even before he ran for president. Could crack some jokes, self-deprecating. Um, you know, I, I do think the Roe v. Wade comments, I expect that to possibly be used in a Democratic campaign ad. Uh, you know, that, that's an area where Democrats think they have an advantage. Uh, they, they have some election evidence to, to, to show for it on abortion. So I think that that soundbite of Trump could come back to haunt him. But overall, as a performance, it was one of his, his better performances. And it probably is going to help help him as we get closer to the, the, the early state primaries. Do you have a guess on what rated better last night, Josh? I, I would bet Fox. I, I, the, the, the front runner, Fox always gets the better ratings. Um, and uh, look, Trump is the front runner. So I think CNN put up what, a couple of friends uh, of mine, Dana and Jake, but they never miss a chance to miss a chance to persuade the center right that they'll be fair. They could have put a conservative on. They chose not to. Yeah, look, I, love, I, mean, I, I, I again, I was flipping back and forth and trying to get the best of both of both networks. But um, look, I thought I thought that the, the moderators were, were, were strong. But yeah, like, I, I thought the best debate was I mean, one of the best debates, at least was the, you know, your debate you did on NBC and the, and the, and the News Nation debate, um, because you had uh, a good mix of questions and you had questions that conservatives, as you note, you want to hear answered about anti You know, I remember at your debate, a lot, a lot of questions about anti-Semitism, which was the big story of the time and one that wasn't percolating outside uh, which became a major, much bigger issue after that debate, frankly. You know what, Josh, I just will never understand. It's so easy to appeal to the entirety of America and some of our broadcast networks. I think Fox with Brett and Martha put on the fairest team going. I like Dana and Jake, and they ask good questions. But when you don't put a conservative on the panel, you're telling half the country don't bother to watch. They'll watch Trump anyway, and he did fine, but I, I just don't understand it. Josh, very quick, Blinken got criticized for the first time on his show this morning by Michael Oren for last night's list of demands. Did you hear that from other people at Jewish Insider? So we've been covering that. I mean, the Blinken trip to, to Israel it was his fourth trip to Israel. We wrote about some of the scrutiny he's gotten for his comments. But look, it's sort of the same playbook by the Biden administration, trying to tweak Israel for things that they really aren't responsible. You know, like the problem with the humanitarian aid view is that it's going to Hamas. It's not going it's to Hamas. They're, 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 they're blowing it. They're walking back. And I think they're going to divide the Democratic Party. Josh Kroshauer on X. Josh Kroshauer from Jewish Insider. Thank you, Josh. I'll be right back. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I've got laryngitis, but I, can, I don't have to talk much. Noah C. Rothman, senior writer at National Review, joins me. Good morning, Noah. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. I'm well. Better than you, apparently. I'm sorry. Well, I feel fine, but laryngitis is laryngitis. Noah, I'd first like to, to ask you, you, it's early. I don't think you've read my Fox News column yet. It urges Donald Trump to name his entire cabinet and turn all... 20 of them loose on the campaign trail to get out there and raise money to get out there and carry the message. And it's a fantasy draft. It's over at Fox News. It's never been done in American history, although running mates have been named early. What do you think about naming a cabinet early? I did read your column, and uh, it, it's an ambitious list. Um, I, I think I think you, you previewed it as uh, the biggest surprise in there is the, is the chief of staff. And I, uh, I agree that it's, it's an ambitious uh, a selection, but it's also one that I don't know is going to be palatable to a lot of the Republican Party. I don't know if it'd be palatable to Donald Trump. 
uh, just basically all your uh, your your best and brightest of the GOP today joining the administration. So much of the administration, the first term, uh, the the achievements of them are attributable to a lot of people that he doesn't like. And the feeling is very mutual now. In particular, you named Mike Pompeo and you didn't name um, some other national security professionals who are in, in particular responsible for his very tough Russia policy, which I appreciated more than anything. Uh, but they're all at odds with each other today. It seems very much like the former president's primary criterion for evaluating. The only one on the list with whom there has been a public argument is Mike Pompeo. I believe they have patched that up because Pompeo did not run. And so I believe he would be palatable. He's looking for everyone on there has not dogged Donald Trump. Every single person. The chief of staff is simply a bulldog. And you need a bulldog. He never had a bulldog. But Noah, let's turn to I, I only raise that because he's not going to be a dictator. I think that dictator talk is nuts. You need a government. This is a responsible list of people, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, again, some of the best and brightest of the Republican Party. I just know not sure to what extent they'll be palatable to either the president and this talent or whether those Republicans would be willing to serve. Most would, most likely. Most but it's would. up to the president, his discretion. Yeah. Now, let me go to the debates last night. Um, I've been playing clips. Let me play for you. Donald Trump last night. Cut number 10. Who would be in the running for vice president? Well, I can't tell you that, really. I mean, I know who it's going to be. Give us a hint. I'll give you. We'll do another show sometime. Well, what about any of the people who you've run against? Would you be open to mending fences with oh, any sure, of them? Oh, sure, I will. I will. I've already started like Christy better. Uh, <laughs> okay, so there you go. No, Chris Christie dropped out yesterday. That is classic Trump. That, by the way, is the sort of quip that Joe Biden is incapable of making. Well, one of Donald Trump's you know, primary, uh, you know, something that that really does benefit him is he's very self-effacing. He has a sense of humor. He he can't he doesn't take himself so seriously that he can't navigate a situation like that in which the joke un, unstated is nevertheless obvious to the audience. Uh, and that's that's a big talent for him. It also does very a lot to mend fences. Um, but, yes, they were trying. The, the moderators were obviously trying to goad him into clarifying some of the attacks on Nikki Haley, the DeSantis camp in particular has been attacking her for suggesting she's reserving her fire against Donald Trump because she wants to still get and stay in his good graces and and find its way, find her way into an administration someday in the future. I, I think that's very overblown, but it's it's an attack that has some teeth to it. And Donald Trump is clearly not interested in diffusing that attack right now. And, you know, obviously for his for his benefit. It doesn't uh, matter much long term. I remember yeah. Bush. You won't remember Reagan Bush 1980, but that was a lot nastier than anything we've seen this year. Let me go to Nikki Haley last night at the CNN debate. Cut number 15. Go to DeSantisLies.com and you can find out for yourself. But why don't we talk about the fact that if we're going to say this, when Ron was representing Florida, he said that he promised not to raise the debt limit when he got to D.C. Yet he raised the debt limit by hundreds of billions of dollars. He used to support Ukraine. He supported Ukraine when President Obama was in office. Now he's trying to copy Trump and saying that he no longer supports Ukraine and doesn't want to give them foreign aid anymore. He also goes and says that he wants to talk about me insulting Iowans. Iowans know when you're telling a joke. The fact that he's only running in one state is not the way you win president. I'm running in all states. But he should tell Iowans why he authored legislation to ban the renewable fuel standard that's so important to Iowans economy. And so the let fact me break he- in here. She attacked on on target all night long. So did DeSantis. Who do you think did well last night in the DeSantis Haley contrast? 
Uh, I think Ron DeSantis uh, did better on points on making his his advancing his message, promoting his message. I thought Nikki Haley did marginally better on style, but that's not saying a lot because both of them, I thought, were gratuitous, churlish to a degree that was uh, unnecessary, almost supercilious. And so a lot of banal opposition research, that attack on Ron DeSantis for raising the debt limit. You could say that you could make that attack on any Republican over the course of the last decades. Raising debt limit hikes has become a banal feature of government. I don't think anybody's going to be on top of that. Similarly, it's a little tendentious to say that, you know, Ron DeSantis has been so anti-energy production when it's not like uh, Florida is sitting on top of a, of a shale deposit. Nevertheless, there is truth to these barbs. It's just that they were they were coached. To go, it seemed to me to never let an opportunity to talk go by without uh, landing at least one or two blows on your opponent. And they're looking for marginal votes. They're really on the hunt for marginal votes in Iowa and New Hampshire. One Ron DeSantis clip last night, cut number 20. She's been confused on the issue. I think she's trying to speak to different groups with different things. But when she says things like pro-lifers need to stop talking about uh, throwing women in jail, that's a trope. No one I've ever met thinks that that's something that's appropriate. Uh, these women are in vulnerable situations. They don't get any help a lot of times from, from these fathers who you know don't want to be there supportive. A lot of times they don't have resources themselves. So it's a very difficult situation. Uh, and we've got to have compassion for those situations. But I think when she starts bringing that in, that's using the language of the left uh, to try to attack pro-lifers. So I think that that, that is wrong. Well, tell me, uh, Noah, I believe that Ron DeSantis has to win Iowa to remain viable. I believe Nikki Haley has to remain uh, win, win, not come in second. New Hampshire to remain viable or it's over. Do you agree with me? I completely agree with you. If there was a contrast last night that was really well-defined, it was one on style. It was one about the extent to which uh, we reserve our right to offend and to be blunt and direct with our message and whether we tailor that message to be uh, as palatable to most people as possible. That was the exchange over the George Floyd reaction. Remember, towards the end of the debate, uh, Ron DeSantis dinged Nikki Haley for saying, you know, this George Floyd thing is a tragedy, who, by the way, was, according to a jury, murdered by a, by a police officer who extended his own authority. That is not something that I think a lot of voters are going to react hostily to. It's very similar to the attack on Nikki Haley for saying that we should be a little bit nicer when we talk about illegal migrants because they have extenuating circumstances, what have you. It's all about style. It is how we address these things. Is it necessary to be churlish and reserve our hostility for the right targets or pare back our attacks in order to be as appealing as possible to the most voters? These are Iowans we're talking about. Iowa nice is a thing. And it really doesn't matter the style to which these Republicans appeal. In the broader Republican electorate, they want combat. They want fighting. They want somebody who's going to be blunt and direct. Now, all Governor Iowan Christie, Republican voters want that? Governor Christie told me last week when he was on the show that 15 his own polling showed that 15% of his voters, and he's got 10 to 15% of New Hampshire, are going to go to Donald Trump. Do the rest of them go mostly to Nikki Haley? How do you see New Hampshire turning out? No, I'll cut to the chase. Who do you see winning New Hampshire? I think Nikki Haley has a real shot to, to win New Hampshire. It's, but right now it's going to be a squeaker. She has momentum behind her, and Donald Trump does not. Does she, so is she we, able to carry that? that out, but then that, that just gets her a shot at winning her home state, right? 
Right. And well, there's a month. There's a month interim between when New Hampshire votes and South Carolina votes and the entire universe will descend on the Palmetto State and there will be no undecided voter at the end of that process. And yes, momentum does count. Mass psychology matters in these sort of things. And Donald Trump will be on the back foot if he's lost one or two of the first early contests. That could very much alter the trajectory of this race. But what does Noah Rothman think is going to happen? If you had to put a gun to my head right now, I'd say Nikki Haley wins by a very narrow margin in New Hampshire. Does that matter in South Carolina? I really don't know. I'm disinclined to say. I think it's a 55-45 you know, percent chance that Nikki Haley's momentum just barely manages to get her over the top. But I wouldn't put a ton of money on it. Yeah, it's also not 2012. There's this enormous Trump mountain out there that you've got to climb. We'll see. We'll see. I don't make predictions, but I think yours would be mine if I made them. Very last question. Can Trump beat Joe Biden with all these indictments? He can, but it's in, it would be incumbent on Joe Biden to step on a landmine there. I think Donald Trump will do a lot of Joe Biden's work for him. He did. I thought he did fine last night. That was good, Donald Trump, last night. Noah Rothman, good to talk to you. Follow him on Twitter on X at Noah C. Rothman. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.